Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, and welcome to episode 244 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. We're here today with Dr. Mark Bergell, founder and executive director of A Wider Circle since 2001, and a former professor of health and sociology at American University. Mark, thank you so much for joining us here today. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Jordan. My pleasure to be here. Excellent. So the first question I'd like to pose to you is, what are you currently doing, or what have you ever done to advance the public interest, and why? Well, my life is now dedicated to helping individuals rise out of poverty. Uh, I think poverty is our greatest social crisis. And I don't think that because I work in the poverty field. I actually work in the poverty field because I have seen that poverty is our biggest problem. And so I dedicate my life. I work about, well, I work seven days a week, about 15 hours a day, uh, because I think it's a crisis. And I think if you have a crisis on your hands, then you work with urgency and you try to solve this crisis before it takes more lives like it does now. It takes, you know, thousands and thousands of lives every year, uh, people who were in poverty just because of their birth mm-hmm. and who struggle uh, and are in survival mode their whole lives. So why is poverty such a great crisis? Obviously, many individuals, especially students of history, may look back and say, well, you know, the Americans 200 years ago, even among the wealthier Americans, don't have half the things that we have today, like electricity or heat in winter without going needing to chop wood and things. What exactly, how would you define poverty? And then why would you, how would you explain your rationale for why you arrived at the conclusion that poverty is the greatest social crisis facing us today? Yeah, I think that I would define poverty as not being able to afford kind of the necessities of life. Uh, So you don't have enough money to pay for housing, food, uh, clothing, and other items that you need every day, Mm -hmm. like heat and or air conditioning. And so that's how I define poverty. And I would say that, uh, you know, in our country, we have normalized it. And we have, you know, shared ideas like that, that if people have indoor plumbing, then they're doing way better than people around the world. And I would say that I don't compare people in poverty here to people anywhere else. We have the resources here to make sure that everybody has a high quality of life, a standard of living where they don't have to stand on corners for food or feel like selling drugs is the only way for them to have money. And for many, many people, that's how they feel. Is it fair to say that the definition and standard of poverty is evolving and that there is no universal standard of poverty? I don't know if I would say that. I think it's pretty straightforward. If you don't have enough money to pay for your day-to-day living, that's poverty. Even though what constitutes poverty in Washington, D.C. may be different than what constitutes poverty in sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah, I would say relative poverty is absolutely the appropriate way to look at it. Mm -hmm. And in fact, relative poverty is probably more accurate to understand how psychologically damaging poverty in the United States is compared to poverty in a country where many, many people are all at least in it together. Now, everybody should, again, have a standard of living that anyone else has. Uh, But in a country where people have so much... And, and resources are all around you, and there's so much good stuff, and you're not able to access that or touch that world, that seems especially tragic to me. Um, so it's the juxtaposition of great wealth to poverty, especially within close geographical boundaries. And the ignoring and neglect of people who are living without. Sure. So how, would it, how did it come to be your life mission 
to pursue, uh, or, or I guess to take it upon yourself to ameliorate uh, the conditions facing the indigent population in the Washington, D.C. area? Well, I chose the Washington, D.C. area in part because I was already here, and I was looking to relocate when I finished my graduate studies, and and then I realized, you know, uh, my work, I was fortunate enough to do a dissertation and to have a, a doctoral study program that was focused on societal health, mm-hmm. where I looked at, you know, what makes us healthy, and what makes us healthy, by the way, is our sense of connection to ourselves and to one another. Uh, that's really at the foundation of health. And... I looked at people living in poverty and realized that just as a team is only as strong as its weakest link, I think a country is only uh, as healthy as its um, perhaps most vulnerable populations mm-hmm. and, and least healthy populations, right? So we're as healthy as the least healthy among us. And when you look at people in poverty, wow, you realize how unhealthy uh, their lives are and they are. So if if I have a friend who has diabetes, mm-hmm. that friend really takes care of it, and it's not a huge part of their life. It's there, but mm-hmm. it doesn't stop them from doing most things. Mm-hmm. If you go down to southeast D.C., you know who has diabetes because they don't have a foot or a couple toes or a whole, you know, half of their leg has been amputated because of the diabetes. Those are major health issues that arise only because those folks don't have access to the preventive care and information that people uh, in other parts of the region have. Would you say most individuals living in this greater Washington community of ours would acknowledge that poverty is the greatest social crisis facing our society today or not? No, I would not. And why not? I just think that we've normalized it, that we think that, yeah, some people are going to be in poverty and other people are not. And it's unfortunate that some people are in poverty, and I'll try to help a little bit, but at least my family's not in poverty, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm happy that I can give. Well, that's not good enough. Yeah. Right. This is a crisis. So, so you have to address poverty and look to help people in poverty as if your own child were living day to day in a neighborhood where getting shot were more likely than going to college. And if we think that's okay, great. But if you think that's a crisis that your kid is is more likely to get shot than to go or, uh, to college or graduate school, then you you got to get involved. I mean, in a heavily committed way. And that's what I think. So. A stated mission of a wider circle is to end poverty. Uh, I wonder if it's to end poverty as we know it, if that's more of an asymptotic sort of goal that you don't think we'll ever be able to reach, or if you really think this is an achievable goal. And, and of course, that, that question returns back to our previous discussion of relative poverty, right? Because as we raise the standard of living of, of everybody, uh, isn't it almost that poverty is defined Uh, in comparison to how much those with the most have, so that there's always going to be those who have less and those who have more, even if those who have less now is much more than those who had the least 100 years ago. So can we ever end poverty? Well, what's okay for your child? That's the only question. Is it okay for your child to have little access to economic mobility? Is it okay for your child to have to choose um, between eating on Saturday or eating on Sunday? Is it okay for your child to be surrounded by neglect and violence and then have to choose what to do each day? That's okay, right? Then I can understand thinking that maybe we should address this like, well, we'll never get at it, but it's a nice goal. No, man, this is life or death. Poverty is life or death. And so, uh, of course, we have to end it. Of course we have to end it because I would never accept my child or my mother living in those conditions. Mm -hmm. 
97% of the people born into poverty in East Baltimore die in poverty in East Baltimore. Mm-hmm. That's not okay. I mean, I, I see anybody who's living in poverty as my child, as my parent, uh, as my sibling, and that's not really theoretical. We are all deeply interconnected. Now, the United States is known as among the more charitable societies in the world, and we're sitting in Maryland, which is among the more liberal states in the United States, in Montgomery County, which is among the more liberal counties in Maryland. So there's a vast network of social services agencies, including your own. Um, And then, of course, there are other portions of of the country, like Arkansas or Texas, which may have fewer, uh, uh, less uh, of a robust social safety net. So I suppose the question I'd like to pose to you now, Mark, is if we are going to end poverty and an acknowledgement of all the different programs that we currently have in this in this portion of society, I guess what's wrong, what's missing, what ought we to do that we are not currently doing, especially given the fact that this community in particular is probably doing more than most other communities around the country to help end poverty. Yeah, I'm grateful that uh, I... I'm able to have a nonprofit organization in this region mm-hmm. where there is such a charitable spirit. But the problem goes deeper than that. Uh, I believe, again, we're all interconnected, that as one of us goes, so go all of us. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we are watching the news these days and we see a lot of demonstration about our differences and an intolerance of difference. Well, there's about 1% of us that's different from everybody else, Right. Somewhere in that average of 1% to 3%. But we bleed the same. We breathe the same. We have the same emotions. What makes us happy is the same, no matter our race or religion uh, or gender identification. All those things that we think make us different are very, very small compared to what makes us the same. In fact, right now, as we're sitting in this room, you're exhaling and I'm inhaling. And Mm -hmm. parts of you come into me and parts of me go into you. And that's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. Um, And we don't like to think of it that way, but we're deeply interconnected. And on top of that, every spiritual and religious tradition speaks of that you love that supreme being, whatever you think that supreme being or how that supreme being exists, even if it's a more natural or nature connection. We all think that at root in those is that you love uh, others, you know, or, or you love your spiritual connection by loving others. That's it. And yet we forget that as soon as we get out of church, temple, or morning prayer, or whatever we do, mm-hmm. or however we exercise our spirituality. And we live day to day um, kind of restricting our love and compassion for those few nearest us. Even if it's a big few, it's still not enough. So let's talk about what a wider circle actually does. Uh, could you walk us through what some of your clients' needs are and what your organization actually does for them? Yeah, I, I think that philosophical underpinning is critical, though, Jordan, because mm-hmm. I think you know, what we do uh, is tertiary, secondary is how we do it, and primary is why we do it. Hmm. I mean, that's true, right? And that's that whole Simon Sinek kind of, uh, you know, workforce approach, but it's true. Right. That why we do this is because these are our brothers and sisters living in poverty. Literally our brothers and sisters and fellow human beings and parts of ourselves, we're all so connected. But that's me living in poverty. Did you always have this perspective or was there an epiphany at some point? I think that I was lucky enough, again, to have great graduate education, both um, by a gentleman named Dr. Bob Karchin and the gentleman named Dr. Yuri Siegenthaler. And they let me kind of um, grow intellectually from, you know, even when I got out of college, I, I had really not thought enough about things. So the fact that I had those two role models in my graduate life allowed me to just run wild. And so it was more of an experience of life in my early adulthood 
When were you first exposed to poverty? Well, I coached a, you know some low-income kids when I was at Northwestern, an undergrad. Um, Did you grow up in Illinois? I grew up in upstate New York, right outside of Albany. And, and where I grew up, I started my life in probably a lower middle class um, neighborhood, and that's probably what our income was. But my father did better and better, and so we moved from neighborhood to neighborhood. And I didn't especially love that because I loved the sense of community in my uh, first neighborhood, which, again, was middle but more lower middle class. And I, I loved the community we had there and that sense of community. So I always had a sensitivity that um, – that the two worlds or three worlds we have in every town and city and state here, that that's not really okay. And that most of the things that people got were handed to them at birth. Mm -hmm. And that that may be okay for them, but it's certainly not okay for people who aren't handed things at birth. So I always had that sensitivity of fairness. Mm -hmm. But it was really when I got here on my own um, and kind of developed a little bit of a a paradigm, if you will, about life and, and what I should be doing. And again, very much affected by the directors of my graduate programs uh, who instilled in me a notion that you can do anything you want, right? And um, and so mix that with then teaching at American University and encouraging my students to do volunteer work mm-hmm. to address these inequalities. Mm-hmm. And I did the volunteer work with them. And so that's when my life really changed. So I did have a bit of an epiphany when I was inside of the homes of people to whom I was bringing food. My volunteer task that semester with my students was to bring food to people who didn't have any food. And I would go into their homes and I just saw this tragic scarcity um, and cycles of poverty with five-year-old girls whose skin and teeth and clothing were characteristic of somebody living in a nation that had no resources. Mm-hmm. And her 20-year-old mother being so deconditioned that I thought, well, that, that girl is going to become that mom. And then the grandmother who would be in her mid to late 30s with a walker and oxygen tubes in her nose already and realizing that 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 kind of trajectory was not okay. Mm-hmm. And also being in those homes and having those people treat me with such love. And I would sit down and bring food, and an hour later I'd be like, oh, i got to go bring food to some other people. Mm-hmm. And so then I'd go back the next week and have these great conversations, and they would just share all this ab- about their lives and ask me about my life and take such an, such an interest in me. And that sense of community that I had in those homes was just like when I was a very young person in that neighborhood. So why not stop there? Many individuals may say, you know what? I understand that there are a lot of challenges facing others in the world. They're less fortunate than me, so I'm going to be charitable. I'm going to write checks to charities. I'll volunteer in the weekends. And that's I'm doing the most, the best I can. You know, I have to raise my family with conditions, standards of living that, that, I'm, that I'm accustomed to. And that's where I'm going to be comfortable, and that's my life. And I'm giving back, and, and that's what I can do. And you were there at one point, right, as a professor at AU. But now, of course, you decided to start your own organization in very entrepreneurial sense, and it has now grown into a large organization. You've been called an everyday hero by CNN. Uh, you have uh, an impact of having served 150,000 people. You have had 15,000 volunteers. Uh, you currently serve 20,000 beneficiaries. Certainly, that's that's a, an array of metrics that exceed what most individuals uh, may ultimately be able to give uh, in acknowledgement of some great need in society. How did you transition from acknowledging a need, as many individuals had, uh, and doing a little bit on the side to help that uh, address that need, and then transition into making this your life's work to living, sleeping every night on a couch uh, in order to be in solidarity with, with your recipients? How did you transition from that to where you are today? Yeah, there were a couple of assumptions in your question that I would correct. For example, if I did 
you know, make some contributions and help out, that wouldn't be the best I could do. Mm -hmm. So if I were to say, you know, I'm doing the best I can, that would have been a lie. Mm -hmm. The best I can is this. And even now, I'm still failing far more than I'm succeeding. So I'm still not doing the best I could do. I'll I'll keep seeking that. But I, I uh, I don't think that any of us are doing the best we can do when poverty is as uh, pervasive as it is, we could do far better. And again, I think it's the same question as every single child who's in poverty, we have to see as our own child. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's the only way. And, and to not see that is to live too small anyway. Do you have your own children? I don't. Yeah. I, uh, I always had a sense that I had to do something a little different. Um, and it didn't, you know, I, I met some great people along the way, you know, so uh, it wasn't for a, a lack of temptation to say, hey, let's settle down and you and I have some kids. But it didn't seem as meaningful to me. So I think this was always in the cards for me. I do think that. Um, and I was lucky to connect to it. And when I did, by the way, have that epiphany and, and start to think about what, what should I do with this feeling now that I've been told by my graduate advisors that there's nothing I can't do and I should think big. And uh, knowing that, seeing this tremendous problem, and I just try to put them together. And I prayed about it. I'm a very spiritual person. Um, luckily, I, I had that. That was supported in my early life as well. And uh, and I cried when I realized I had to do this. I cried for a couple of reasons. One, probably because I knew I would never have, you know, um, the financial means to live anything but a very simple life. But that also resonated with me, to be, uh, to be serious. I, I've always preferred a simple life, um, especially when so many people do not have in our country. I never thought it was fair to see all those people living without um, when I was a kid. And now it just crystallized into a, a bigger vision. But, you know, Jordan, everybody, I believe, ought to be living with a very big vision of what we can create, what is possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the question to ask you say, what is possible here? To allow poverty to endure like it does, to allow people to suffer so badly, um, unless I'm fully engaged in that, then I'm not doing the best I can do. So many listeners this episode may, I'm sure, right now they're feeling quite inspired by your story. They say, you know, I, I don't really know what's facing my community right now. I don't really know what laws need to be passed. I don't really know what it is that I can do. Where can they start, Mark? That's a good question, by the way. And, and Jordan, I realize I didn't really answer your other question about what we do service-wise. So I can come back to that um, in, in just a moment. But what people can do is is to volunteer, but volunteer like you really mean it. And volunteer for the people f- for whom you're volunteering. In other words, don't volunteer for yourself. Don't check off a box in your life. I did that before, too. So I, I did service kind of like a big brother to somebody once. It was a more informal relationship um, with a family that uh, lived in the same building where I lived 25, 30 years ago. Um, but I think, you know, commit. I think the courage in this is the commitment. And so find an organization that's going to go all in to help people to actually solve something, not just serve something, uh, and then make it a big part of your life. And don't put a limitation on, you know, what you can do in that setting or on anything you can do in this world. Um, but to get back to the question you asked, I'm sorry I did not answer um, right away, was so why do you circle those four things? First, we furnish people's homes uh, because of what I described when I walked into those homes and saw people living without beds and dressers and tables and chairs, and they didn't have towels in the, in the bathrooms and, and they had nothing in the kitchen, maybe a pot or a pan, maybe in the fridge they had a bottle of ketchup. That's literally what I saw in home after home. Mm-hmm. So we decided to furnish those homes, and we furnish about 4,500 homes a year right now, which allows us to help 16,000 children and adults go from living with nothing or next to nothing to having all the essential items they need day to day. 
to be able to sleep in a bed and sit on the couch when you get home and put your feet up on the coffee table and watch TV. If you don't have those types of items in your home and you're a 13 or 14-year-old boy or girl, in the summertime, you're not coming home. Why would you come home at night to sleep on the floor that's really hot? So people stay out. It's, it makes perfect sense. I don't know if I'd want to come home to sleep on a floor and be reminded how much I don't have. Mm-hmm. I'd rather stay out with my friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as soon as kids are old enough to disobey, poverty makes it pretty easy and clear-cut. And often the parents of kids in poverty have experienced that same life. So while they are scared for their kids, they know that. So furnishing homes is big, and that's a great model of we, we get the items we distribute from people who have more than they need. And we look only for items in dignity condition. We don't want to give people throwaways. We want to give people really nice stuff. And we want to look them in the eye and say, you know, we love and respect you, and we're going to give you the best that we can get. Mm-hmm. Some people think that if, if people have nothing, they'll be happy to get anything. I think if people have nothing, they've already gotten the worst in life, and we need to give them the best. So that's how we handle that program. And the second program we have is, is workforce development. I've, I don't think I've ever seen an adult get out of poverty without a job. Yet the people we serve are severely underprepared for work. And so we have an intense job training program that includes a boot camp and uh, job coaches and resource events uh, and, you know, kind of follow-up activities with people who take our classes. And about 83% of the people who take our boot camp are working within a year. Uh, And that's because we involve the whole community as job coaches. So to one of your earlier questions, if people want to commit, they can become a job coach. Uh, And I would highly recommend that because it's that human relationship. Poverty endures because of a lack of human connection. And just your website, by the way? Yeah, you can visit our website, awidercircle.org. Awidercircle.org. So if you're in the Washington, D.C. area and you're interested in helping those without, uh, then you may go to awidercircle.org and volunteer to be a job coach and help uh, in- increase the 83% success rate of workforce development. Okay, That's so- right, because if you think about it and you say 83% is good, and, they, and people sometimes say to me, Mark, that's a great goal. Just stay right there. You don't need to increase your goal and stress yourself out. And I say, okay, so which 17% of your friends or of your children is it okay to not help get a job? It's kind of like saying we should try to reduce poverty by 20% and be happy with that. I always like to say, okay, which four of your five kids do you want to keep in poverty since you're only going to try to you know, help 20%? Mm-hmm. And they could say back, well, we're going to try, but come on, look at what's happened in the past and that would be progress. And I would say that's not how you address a crisis. Mm-hmm. You don't try to save... 20% of the people in a sinking ship. So, and the third uh, goal of a wider circle? Third program is called Wraparound Support. And that's a program where we match one family in poverty with four families that are not in poverty, and they form this team of five families, all with a focus on helping that family relative to employment, education, housing stability, financial stability, and health and wellness. Mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful thing to watch those relationships evolve, but you realize how much we are a region of two worlds. I mean, we really are. We're uh, people who become support partners, who connect to the family in poverty. They think the change can happen quickly because they're you know, motivated and, and they've had a lot of success in their lives and they, they might not have the deep sensitivity no matter how many times we try to share uh, what it's like to live in poverty. You only really get a sense of that when you start working with people up close. Then you see the obstacles internally and externally that exist for families in poverty. And so that's a great program, and it's about a year and a half old. And, and our final program is we take all of what I just described, and we do it in low-income neighborhoods as well as here. So we do some neighborhood revitalization work. And we have two programs in Southeast D.C. where we're a constant presence in the lives of the families in those neighborhoods. And we're building some real you know, bridges for them and building human connections for them, connecting them with resources at a much higher level than existed in those neighborhoods prior. Now, uh, I'd like to ask, you've, you've been... 
you founded a, a wider circle 16 years ago, uh, and clearly there are many individuals whom you've served. Uh, I wonder if there are any alumni of a wider circle, any who once were in poverty who are now out of poverty and they're your success stories. Yeah, those are fewer than I wish, but the success stories are really heartening. You know, we had a woman who was in our job training program, and uh, she said she had given up on herself because she felt like everybody else gave up on her. A friend of hers was going to be in our program and talked her into coming to our, our boot camp. That woman now makes a salary of over $60,000 a year. Somebody else who was in our, our last boot camp makes $71,000 a year. And two other people make fifty-seven dollars and $41,000 a year, respectively. And those are great success stories. Um, and it's not easy to get there, but uh, that's why I, I, I feel like I could scream at the top of my lungs every day, hey, this is a crisis, and it's solved by people. People help other people get out of poverty. That's the answer. So, Mark, as we approach the end of this podcast, the final two-part question for you. And we hit upon this topic a little bit, but I'd like you to sum it up right here for our listeners. The question is, why? Why have you been so motivated? Why is it continuing, continuing to be so important to you? You haven't passed a baton. You're still sleeping on your couch. You spoke about your motivation earlier about this crisis, but also... And since you've spoken about this, perhaps give greater emphasis to the second part of this question, which is, what is your legacy? What's the impact of all your work? You can't single-handedly address poverty in all 50 states in the United States. What are you looking to do? Are you looking to be a model to inspire others to replicate a wider circle in other cities? What is the impact and the legacy of a wider circle? Well, first, you know, the word can't doesn't really go well in here. Um, we're not a can't organization. We're not a won't organization. Um, I do this because as one of us goes, so go all of us. That's it. That is my brother or sister there. I don't think that philosophically. I think that literally. I cry for the people who live in poverty each day, but I also cry for us who do not care enough to engage uh, because we're not whole beings. We're not all of who we could be unless we connect at deep levels with others. And we don't have to connect with others who are just in poverty. You connect with everybody. Um, because that's how we exist. And so I deeply feel that we are one. And we like to throw that phrase around, yeah, we're one, you know, we are all together in this, everybody together and all that. But what does that really mean? It means that we commit and live as if we believe that we are one. And so if one person's in poverty, then all of us are in poverty. If one people's, one person is suffering and making choices that will, you know, ruin their life or other lives, then we're all doing that. And so that's how I live. And I, and I keep very connected to that. And I feel very fortunate about my answer to the second piece, which is I don't have to do it alone because I have a great team of people and there are great volunteers in this region. And so the power of one is not not relevant here. This is not about the power of one. I don't have to do anything by myself. And in fact, I could do nothing by myself. I have incredible staff here, an incredible staff, uh, and I have a great board of directors. And then we have a lot of volunteers who are deeply compassionate people. So together, we're kind of growing this. And and my feeling about the country is, you know, uh, there are great leaders around the country working in this. I wish for us all that we had this sense of urgency that I don't see. Uh, I wish at the governmental, nonprofit, and private sector levels that leaders were deeply committed to having their lives uh, result in the improvement of other lives. I mean, the rise out of poverty. Uh, and I think over and over again, we have to say, what is okay for your child, your brother, sister, or your parent? And when we think we've got everybody living in a way that is okay for our child, parent, or sibling, then we've done something. And that has been Dr. Mark Bergell, founder and executive director of A Wider Circle and former professor of health and sociology at American University, who speaks about a profound sense of fairness uh, due to the luck of birth, 
uh, in his quest to end poverty, uh, according to his mantra, as one of us goes, so go all of us. He speaks out about a greater urgency that we all need across society to address this profound crisis. In fact, uh, he calls poverty the greatest social crisis of our time. He refers to the power of community and that we're not attacking this as an individuals, but we are moving through this together as a community. And in fact, what his third point of his program, third point of his program, where he connects one family in poverty with four not, uh, simply reinforces this idea that we're all in it together. And ultimately, this uh, sense of helping those among us whom are most vulnerable uh, in an attempt to solve and not just serve is in some how Marx seeks to advance the public interest uh, in his community and in communities around the nation. Mark, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Jordan. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com and on iTunes, leave a review of this podcast on iTunes and listen on Stitcher, SoundCloud, CastBox, Blueberry, Player FM, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Should you wish to comment on this episode, you're welcome to leave a voicemail at 240-630-0380. And the first three minutes of that voicemail may be played in future episodes of Public Interest Podcast. Should you wish to support the podcast, you're welcome to leave a contribution in an amount that you feel comfortable with at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.